Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Danny LaRue is in the building. Danny and I are going to break down NBA rookie extensions that occurred from Devin Vassell and Jaden McDaniels to Cole Anthony and Aaron Naismith. We might even go back, talk a little bit about Tyrese Halliburton, LaMelo Ball, Desmond Bain, Anthony Edwards, the four guys that extended back in the summer at damn near max money. Then we're going to talk about what all of this means, because to me, what is always so interesting talking about these extensions, in my opinion, at least, is trying to figure out what they say about team building. And given that we're in the middle of a new collective bargaining agreement that just started uh, in July, this was the first cycle where the new extensions took place under that collective bargaining agreement. So it's worth discussing what exactly all of this means in terms of team building moving forward. There's nobody better to talk about this with than Danny LaRue. So Danny, what's going on, buddy? Doing well, my friend. Excited to have regular season basketball back, but of course still plenty to discuss. The timeline of all this stuff is is challenging for my line of work, but also really, really fun. I actually want to um, start this with a little bit of context. This is a piece that isn't published yet, so you probably might not know this is coming with I love it. where to put this all in, in a broader context. And I think this is why I want to start with this is because I think that this is what teams were considering when all of these when all these deals came down the pike. So we are close to. So you mentioned that there is a new collective bargaining agreement that kicked in for this league year, which has a lot of interesting wrinkles, some of which we've previously discussed. The other elephant that is adjacent to the room is the new national television contract. And so basically that is going to kick in for the 25, 26 season. So it's not this season. It's not next season. It's the season after that. And we don't know what those numbers are going to be. We're not going to know that for a while, but it's presumed to be a significant increase. And so one of the elements they added in the current now current collective bargaining agreement is a set of agreements from the owners and players that, the salary cap from year to year will never drop, but also will never rise more than 10%. Yeah. And you may be thinking, oh, 10%, like that, that, you know, like that doesn't have to be that much. Like, for example, when, it, when, when, I don't know the exact number, when the, in the 2016 spike, which led to Kevin Durant joining the Warriors, it was much larger than that. But something to remember is that 10% of a really large number is a really large number. And yes. so my preliminary, and this is using the league's lower, more modest official projection for next year, is that during the scope, during the course of some of these rookie scale extensions, the league is going to hit a $200 million salary cap. And yeah. it could happen as early as 27, 28. I think it's going to happen in 28, 29. So we're still a few years out from that, you know. So the contracts that are signed this year, that will be the fifth year of those. So that will only be that, that narrow group, McDaniels and some of the Max guys. But 
when we're currently at, I think, 132, and you know we're not that far off of it breaking 100 million for the first time, that we may be five years away from 200 million, puts into perspective why some teams were pretty aggressive putting years on the table for these guys. Yeah, and I want to talk about that, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the ways that these shorter term deals I think were used as potential trade chips as opposed mm-hmm. to like real extensions that, you know, they will have these guys on their teams for a long time. There's one particularly that I think stands out in this regard. Uh, before we do that first, just some housekeeping, go subscribe to the game theory YouTube channel. If you're watching now we're live, we're recording this for people. Uh, if you're watching later on on YouTube or if you're listening on the podcast feed, Go to the Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vecini, YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button. We're doing well over there. The cool thing is... I, apo- well, I apologize for monologuing before you did you, you did your business. No, I love it. That was smart. It, it gave people a taste of what we're going to talk about uh, before I gave my spiel. So, as well, you will notice I'm doing some breakdowns of young players in the league. I will do some draft breakdowns as well. I've done Alex R and Bobby Clintman already. At some point, I swear I'm doing Nikola Topic because I find him fascinating. I've already started breaking down that tape. It's just going to take a minute for me to get through it uh, because the NBA is back and I'm trying to get eyes on all these teams. So go there. You will get some YouTube exclusive videos. You will get things like me breaking down Victor Wambanyama's debut, which I did for about 40 minutes last night. You will get things like Cade Cunningham, a breakdown of his debut against the Miami Heat, which was fascinating for a number of reasons. I've pulled that tape. I'm recording that as soon as Danny and I finish. So that'll be up probably after the games tonight, uh, of which there are some fun games on TNT. So go watch those. I think that's all I've got. Go hit the subscribe button on the podcast link, whatever we want to talk about. We'll, We'll talk about that later on and throughout the show. But... Let's start with the cap increase in the aggression of teams trying to get these players locked in. And sometimes what that meant when they didn't get a player locked in for longer term. The one, let's start with Devin Vassell and Jaden McDaniels, because those are the two I think that were the highest profile of this batch. We'll go back and we'll talk about Halliburton and LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards and Desmond Bain a little bit later. But the Vassell and McDaniels deals I thought were particularly interesting. Uh, do you do you know off the top of your head what the Vassell uh, guarantee number is? It's like one thirty six, right? One thirty five, I believe, is what I what's what's in my head. That might not you know with it, where where the incentives count, we get some yeah. of that fuzziness. But yeah, one thirty five, one thirty six seems fair. And I believe the McDaniels number is like right around one thirty one-ish, if I remember correctly. 131 was the number I would use. There are some unlikely incentives in there. Yeah, and I I believe that they're tied to, like, defensive, like, all defense, like, defensive player of the year stuff, like, all defense. They they did all defense stuff for Jaden's incentives. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head what Devin's incentives are, but probably somewhat unlikely. Both of these deals are 131, $136 million dollars. They are for five years. Let's let's start here just on a base level. What did you think of these contract extensions for these players? The ch- challenge with them, and which is so different, we'll talk about 
Anthony Edwards and all that is like right now the expectation is that if your goal is to like be a conference finals team as much as I'm optimistic about both Devin Vassell and Jaden McDaniels they're probably not going to be the best player on a conference finals team at least over the next couple of years like that's that's a lot to ask and generally those guys are either more on ball or they're kind of a different defensive role than Jaden McDaniels plays as good as he is and as good as he was but they're not getting paid to me, like if you're kind of gaming it out, as I just said, like the potential of a $200 million cap, eventually, that doesn't mean that's where we are right now. I think that these are reasonable contracts, albeit ones that could have potentially been, you know, something on the table a year later. And I think that for, for McDaniels is one of the, is one of the things that we as cap nerds are deprived of is between McDaniels and Mikhail Bridges, these defense first low usage at the time of the extension wings haven't really hit restricted free agency in a while. And my theory has long been that they've been, that they, they've gotten below, below that below market because they are the market. But like that is a, it is a challenge for evaluation and McDaniels yeah. is probably closer to the mean there. Mikhail Bridges, I mean, I picked it as the best contract in the league, non-max, non-minimum a year ago for, yeah. or six months ago for dunked on. And I think that that is, you know, that's still true. In fact, it's probably gotten stronger since we recorded. I don't see that same kind of upside with McDaniels just because the ball skills haven't been as good as Mikhail, but he is a damn good player, obviously, right now. And with Vassell, like, I I saw some stuff with him on ball last year. And while you want to reduce his role on a really good team, you know, he's not going to be initiating as much as he did for the 22-23 Spurs. I like a lot of that, and as we actually discussed briefly on Real GM Radio, his defense hasn't been as good as I hoped, but it's still, he isn't a sieve out there, I would say, like, to me. So, to me, these are strong money, you know, like, this is not child's play or anything like that, but they're for players who profile as, like, the second, third, or fourth best player on a very good team, and they're being paid like it. So, I'm, I'm on board the question that I wanted to ask you kind of as a follow-up there is signing these a year early. The fundamental phrasing that I've used for years is that it shifts risk from the players to the owners, because the idea is like, heaven forbid something like what happened to Brandon Clark, or you could draw on some of the off-court yeah. guys that have had things recently. You never know where that year is going to go. And it could be that you play worse or better than expected, or it could be an injury. And for me, from the player's perspective, this is life-changing money. It's all of those sorts of things. But from a team perspective, do you think that the Spurs and the Timberwolves, in this case, got enough off of the like expected value that they could get a year from now in restricted free agency to justify committing now? I think the answer to that is yes, because you run the risk of the TV deal getting locked in. And like that deal getting like done and uh, like teams and owners and executives having like a real tangible number that they know that they're working off of that then allows them to go, oh, we can't sign a bad max contract right now for five years, basically, because the cap is going to continue to rise to such a level to where it doesn't matter, Mm -hmm. right? Like no matter what you're signing Jaden McDaniels to right now, it's going to be like 15% of the cap, right? If not less by the time this is done on his final year of this deal, it could be 
by the time he's done closer to like what 13 14% right based on current projections something in that ballpark yeah that seems right so when you look at a deal like this getting done to me i i, I just think that you run the risk of these guys hitting restricted free agency and another team going okay we're just going to max them and, well, and can i can i throw a number at you for that yeah using the league's current estimate which is 142 million for next year a 25% let's call it the auto porter contract you you could use Aiden whatever you want to do yeah. so that's a 40 year probably going to be a 3 plus 1 meaning the fourth year is a player option the total value of that over the 4 years using the 25% cap 152.7 million dollars so basically right in the range of what these guys signed over 5 and so if you think right. that there was a chance and of course a much more favorable structure not only because it's five years, but because it's not a player option in the last year, because you assume that the players are going to the players and the representation are going to assign that or are going to decide it correctly. So even if you think it's a twenty-five percent chance, and it could be much higher for, for either of these gentlemen, chance that somebody, you know, the one of those like young teams with cap space, like the Pistons or the Magic throws that kind of an offer. I mean, we saw Austin Reeves wither on the vine. I was stunned with how nothing came to pass for him. But it only takes one or two teams to really gum that up. And, you know, you're basically getting the same player for a year or two fewer. And not only that, but they're hitting unrestricted free agency. This isn't like you get another bite at match rights and anything else. And so it is a lot to commit earlier, but I'm generally in the same boat as you where... It wouldn't have taken much. And remember, that's at the league's current estimate, which is only a, I think it's a 4.4% rise. It could go up as much as 10. I don't think it's going to, but it theoretically could. That depends on the regional sports networks and a couple other variables that are uncertain as of this recording. So for both of them, there is a chance that, that, that they regret it. I mean, you could go back to what the Warriors did with Jordan Poole last year. And like they, if, if they hadn't signed him to that extension, let's say those were the terms that would get it done, it probably would have been easier to pivot. Now, you can make an interesting counter to that, and I think this could be relevant for the Minnesota Timberwolves in particular, where if they hadn't done Jordan Poole deal, it would both would they would have been less sticky with everything else right now, but they also probably would not have Chris Paul because he was the matching salary that made sense there. And Minnesota The, the Warriors. Them, okay. The yeah, Warriors, yeah, yes. Okay. Um but so the Timberwolves are have committed themselves temporarily. Not I, I don't love the phrasing because they can move out of it at any point in the next eighteen months, that they have enough money on their books that it looks like they're gonna pay the tax next year. Now, that does not mean they will pay the tax next year, but it does mean that they're posturing in that direction. And yep. one of the one of the thought processes that has to be working through every front office, every general manager, president of basketball operations is you fast forward a year and you say, what are the odds that if this is the guy we end up needing to move rather than in Minnesota's case, it being Gobert or Carl Anthony Towns, it's not going to be Anthony Edwards, that teams, how, how do we think other teams are going to feel about that? And if we think they're going to feel good about it, then that's an extension we should probably sign now. And if there's, you know, let's let's say it's a 10% chance or a 50% chance that other teams will be risky, will be shaky on it, well, then that changes your calculus a little bit. And I think that both of these franchises probably feel okay about it, 
because yeah. as you mentioned that 25% max and everything else like that there will be somebody interested in what they can do as long as both Vassell and McDaniels play to or above their expectations on top of it let, let's think about it from like the fifth year adding the fifth year perspective which in my opinion is a big deal to lock in that fifth year at this number right that deal is going to be what like probably uh let's say 14 to 15% of the cap right in that fifth year of the contract and it'll probably be 16 17 in the fourth year something like that is that fair that does that does seem fair so like jaden jaden mcdaniels the what i have for his last year is 29813 so let's say let's say so the cap like 14, is 14 yeah let's say the cap is 207 million i'm doing i'm using the basic calculator that's 14.4% yeah. So, so yeah. Jeremy Grant this summer signed a deal for 21% of the cap, basically. If you think Jaden McDaniels and Devin Vassell are going to be at that level, and I do personally, like I think that by the time they're in their prime and signing these deals, they are probably going to be in that ballpark of player, if not better, right? And this is removing all upside from the equation of them potentially turning into better players than that. If you think they are going to sign for a deal that is 21% of the cap, something like that, you're talking about a situation now where you have saved seven, eight percent of the cap, basically. And that's an enormous savings. That's a huge percentage of savings for you to potentially have real flexibility down the road. So that's why these deals, in my opinion, make a lot of sense to do now on what look like big numbers at the moment, but are not going to be big numbers. Now, here's the next question I'll ask you. What do you think Jaden McDaniels is as a player? Like, how do you think he is? What is his value as a player overall? I think his ideal role is as a lead perimeter defender. He can take on assignments and, and, and like he can fill more than just like the lead perimeter defender role. He can, he does a better job navigating screens than most guys his size, but he can also take on some of the tougher wing assignments as well. He can do some supplemental mm-hmm. help stuff, but depending on where you have him on the floor, like if you have him doing point of attack, you can't do supplemental help stuff because that's not your job. No one, no one can do that. Even Victor Webinyama can't really do that. And he's, he's a cheat code. So you have that. And then McDaniels, I see him for right now as a player who is going to have a smaller role in your offense, but can do a reasonably good job. He's not going to take terrible shots, Dylan Brooks style. And he's not going to be that three-point shooter where the other team is tethered to him like there just aren't that many you know that's the real three and d dream is the idea where it's like not only can they shoot the three but that they keep the player but that you know they're going to be taken one step rather than two or three and mcdaniels i haven't seen as much of the like handle to think that he can really grow like the on ball part of his game dramatically guys have proven me wrong all the time i hope he does i hope he just unlocks that in his mid-20s and just becomes a much better version. We've seen some defense-first guys do that. Even so, that to me, like what I just described, you you definitely need an offensive number one. But part of what makes it what makes Jane McDaniel so useful to a good team is, let's say you have that offensive number one, however you, however you want to handle that. He makes it life easier on your big defensively which is very good. And we've seen, like, for example, Drew Holiday made life easier on Brooke Lopez, who was one hell of a defender. That can be really, really valuable. And 
he's not taking so much away offensively. He's not doing a lot, but he's also not taking a lot away. So that means from a team building perspective, you have a little bit more flexibility. So on a, on a great team, third or fourth best player on a good team, potentially second, I think that's about right. I think that's right too. And I think what's important to bring up within this conversation is that if you want to win an NBA title now, the top four guys on your team are probably going to take up 100% of your cap. Right. right. Like you look at the way that the Nuggets are created right now. The Nuggets are in a situation where they have Nicole Jokic, Aaron Gordon, Michael Porter Jr., Jamal Murray. Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray are on max 25%, you know, contracts. They aren't 25% anymore because when they signed it, the cap was a little bit lower, but they're pretty close at this point, right? I would imagine Murray is probably right around 25. That sounds about right. Maybe like 22, 23. And then Michael's right around 22, 23. And then Aaron Gordon, a little bit lower. Then they have Contavious Caldwell Pope, who's taking up real percentage of the cap at this point. So you have to pay these guys. If you want to win a title, you have to be willing to go into the tax and you have to be willing to pay your third and fourth best players real substantial amounts of money. And with Jaden particularly, I just want to talk about like what Jaden is as a player. Jaden McDaniels is, in my opinion, one of the five, maybe honestly, two or three best perimeter defenders in the NBA. It's him. It's Mikhail Bridges. Honestly, I think those guys are more valuable than Drew Holiday because they are bigger and longer and they can deal with a wider variety of players. You see the way that Jimmy Butler caught Drew Holiday last year. I would rather have Jaden McDaniels and Mikael Bridges defensively than those two. I think OG Ananobi is another one that I would just rather have as like a better on-ball defender who's a little bit more versatile. So Jaden McDaniels is in their echelon defensively. He is an elite help defender. He flies all over the place. He's long. He's six foot nine to six foot ten. He has like reasonable length, and his instincts are absolutely tremendous. He is everywhere all at once. Offensively, He's a good open three-point shooter. I think there is some room for growth from him. If you remember Jaden McDaniels when he was younger, coming up at Federal Way in Seattle and you know going to Washington, this is a guy that was known as a shot creator more than anything else. Uh, I don't know that he's ever necessarily going to be that. His shot creation always struck me as like, okay, he can dribble and shoot for somebody who's six foot nine as opposed to like being able to dribble and shoot on an NBA level but he's still so young that there is real time for those skills to develop, particularly the handle side, because the shooting is there. Now there is enough time for those skills to develop where I think he can be, you know, a 17, 18 point per game guy, you know, maybe it is ceiling. That's not out of the question. And if he is that he is a ridiculously, ridiculously valuable player on top of it. I think it's worth bringing this up as well. Tim Connolly was the general manager of the Denver Nuggets when all of these extensions, Nicole Jokic, Michael Porter Jr., Jamal Murray, were signed. Tim Connolly, by and large, throughout the course of his career, has proven and shown that when you do your job, you are going to get paid. Genuinely straight up. He is going to take care of you with an extension, and he is not going to let you hit restricted free agency. And I think there are real follow-on effects with that for a team. Like I think that knowing that it's a real meritocracy and that if I do my job, Tim is going to take care of me. That's a real genuine benefit to getting drafted by the Minnesota Timberwolves and knowing that you're in a positive position 
in that circumstance. Now, just paid Nas Reed as well. Nas Reed grew, developed with the Minnesota Timberwolves, made sure to take care of them, right? Like other players around the league notice that notice this agents notice this. There's a reason that people like dealing with Tim Connolly. It's because he's not going to bullshit you. And because he is going to take care of your guys whenever they prove that they're good. Now to your point about their tax situation, it's really interesting. Uh, <laughs> my, my biggest thing is I still don't know how much I believe in trust in the Rudy Gobert, Carl Towns combination. And to me, signing Jaden McDaniels to this extension does not change anything there. Correct. If I'm them, I'm building around Anthony Edwards, Jaden McDaniels, and one of those guys, and then making a decision on which one. I'm not doing... Or, or at least I see how it goes this year with both of them. Because last year, it was a bit of a struggle, in my opinion, when those two were on the court together. It was. And part of that was the weirdness that Carl Anthony Towns couldn't make a three when Rudy Gobert was on the floor. And there isn't any sort of reason to believe that that is real, that there is something fundamentally there that is that is going there. And, and I think that your general thesis is pretty fair. And the idea that you have to, you know, budget this amount of the cap and, and that your best players are going to make that and that the screaming deals, you know, the, there's a fair argument to be made that Stephen Curry signing that what eventually became hilariously below market extension is beyond his individual brilliance. Like that, the individual brilliance is what set, set the table for everything. But the second part of it was having that contract, then that gave the Warriors a little bit more latitude than most, especially in the KD situation. That's how part of that and the spike is how they had the, the gap space. You can't bet on that. Like that, especially not with the way that things are being structured right now. And there, there aren't that many, there aren't that many players who are on sub max contracts who are one of the 10 best players in the league. And if they are, they're not going to be on them for very long. Like that's just the way, the way that you have to treat it is that you're going to pay them. And then from there, maybe you can get a value on the second or third best player, but usually you're probably not. And, and they're, they're generally properly valued around the league. And then fourth players can be a part of the margin. And really that's also, a big part of the story with what ownership's willingness to spend. And that could end up being part of the Jaden McDaniels experience too, is if that player is making 20 million versus 30 versus 40, that changes things. Like that's a part of the Celtics equation moving forward as well. When you consider like Jason Tatum is going to get his money. Jalen Brown has already gotten his money. Porzingis actually signed a very reasonable extension to my eyes. He played awesome on Wednesday. Um, and then, you know, it's figuring out the other stuff. Is it, are they going to pay Drew Holiday what it, you know, what it seems like the market's going to bear there? But I don't want to get too far afield. And I agree with you on the general point. And I don't want to dwell as much on Devin Vassell as we have, but I want to make, I want to make one quick note, which is Devin Vassell last year, 39% on eight threes per 36 minutes. That is really impressive. And the, these weren't necessarily yep. easy attempts. Well, and I think that with Vassell as well, the thing that stood out was the improvement in pick and roll as well. Like he's able to run ball screens now and he's able to create real shots in those circumstances. Uh, he's able to get to his mid-range spots and knock down shots from there. What do you think of Vassell as a running mate for Victor Wembanyama? Because that's ultimately the big question here for them. There's a lot to like. I think that you still need that number one offensive player. Now, I don't know. That's probably the initiator. Like there, there are different archetypes here and it gets kind of difficult, especially with Jokic bending everything in a positive way. 
I think of Wembenyama as more of a dynamic complementary player than like the one that you're running that kind of stuff through. And then you're Vassell, saying an Anthony Edwards style player or Anthony Davis. I'm sorry, Anthony Davis style, style player. player. And 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 Wembenyama has the talent to to move beyond that. But we're speaking practically here, even if he's a special prospect among special prospects. That's still generally like the Jokic is so special for so many reasons, but that's a big one of them. And with Vassell, what intrigues me is the idea that he can kind of dance between the the primary and secondary creator roles and that he shoots so well that you can play him off ball and other teams are going to have some real problems there. So San Antonio and with Wembenyama, you have a lot of that defensive foundation, even if it is in help role, what he plays the four and the five over the next five years is going to be one of the key questions in the, the NBA beyond just how good he is. So I like that. And Vassell, you know, you brought up how these are going to be a smaller proportion of the cap. I think he's a very good player. And one other important note is that some of these contracts, not all of them, but some of these contracts are going to look very good in time. And the natural follow-up to then is like, oh, will you be able to extend them? And based on the rules, like you said, basically now you can get, instead of it being a 20% raise, unless you qualify for the, like the super max or anything like that, which, you know, that would be a lot for Vassell or or Jim McDaniels to do is you can get a 40% raise. And so 40%, I I did this math for McDaniels that puts him at about 41.6 million. That could be the starting salary for that. Yes. We're going to be in a new salary cap environment and all of these numbers are going to get wild and people are going to have sticker shock for let's call it at least a decade. But I think that would be enough to get it, to get a deal done knowing what we know right now. And if it's not enough, then the Wolves are in a very good situation. You know, if, if $41 million is not enough for Jaden McDaniels in six years, then you've got yourself a really, really, really good basketball player, and you have bird rights and everything else. So Annie. the idea that I, I think that because of the the loosening of extension rules, which I supported, I, there are a few things in the yeah. CBA I don't love, that it makes a lot of these kind of secondary moves like the, the downsides of like, like this was a case with Aaron Gordon at one time too. There are a few other guys where, or Sabonis where they ended up doing a renegotiation extension where you got a deal, but then that deal actually made things thorny later on. And so I think that that'll be okay. But Devin Vassell going back to his game, like I think that he's probably more of a third best player on a really good team, but he's a third best player that works really well with a lot of first and second best players. And yeah. that versatility actually matters a lot. And there, you know, there are a lot of square pegs and there are a lot of round holes in the league. And so you you need to be able to have those more immalleable guys. And it's interesting, like you brought up, and this will be more for McDaniels than than for Vassell, but you brought up Jeremy Grant. And Jeremy Grant, who not only played on the Nuggets, we've invoked Tim Connolly and some of these other things, but he signed a significant contract when it looked more like Damian Lillard was going to be in the Portland Trailblazers. Knowing what we know right now, at his number, there will still be teams interested in Jeremy Grant when he becomes trade eligible closer to the deadline. And that is really good news for both the Timberwolves and the Spurs because these players are making a smaller proportion of the cap. They're less proven than Jeremy Grant is. But they're younger and they, they'll have that intrigue. So if worse comes to worse, you end up you know, getting into a situation where you can spend your money better than them, which good luck to you. I mean, I I, I think that's going to be, you know, it's possible, but, you know, we're talking more in like the max range and everything else. So 
that means they're the even if they went underwater, they probably wouldn't be underwater much, and I don't think they will be. Yeah. I'm a little bit more skeptical on Jeremy just because of the age factor. Like these guys are signing deals for their year, like what, twenty five to you know, twenty nine ages, yeah, right? That's, that's what it is for Vassell. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremy is more like what, it's gonna be like twenty nine to thirty four. That seems and, a little bit more and, dangerous. And Sam, to me. that's a great point. However, and it's true that the rules don't apply the same to stars. Generally speaking, as somebody who said Russell Westbrook was one of the worst contracts in the league, and he got traded twice during that window, both times as positive value, there, it, it's not necessarily the way that is helpful for us to see the league. But yeah. um, if a player is credibly or plausibly positive value. At the time, in the year that the contract is traded, there is odds are there will be somebody who says, damn the torpedoes, like, let's just let's just work with it from there. And that's probably the theory with Jeremy Grant. Like, there aren't many players who can help us out as much who are available. So I'm not saying the Blazers are going to get, like, five first-round picks or something ludicrous for him. Right. But the idea that a team is interested in that the later years in that contract won't bother them as much because... Who knows where that franchise is going to be at that point? And, you know, the same thing that's factoring into all the stuff we already talked about is that if the cap is rising a ton, his contract will be a smaller proportion of the cap, too. I always think about it this way with situations like that. It takes about 12% of GMs in the league to have a different opinion on a player than consensus to create a bidding war. Yes. And... 12% is a low number. If you look at polling, you will be stunned on some of the things that 12% of the population believe, right? Yeah, I mean, and you can think about like what happened with D'Angelo Russell. Like D'Angelo Russell signs this contract with the Warriors, doesn't have the greatest first year there. But the team that wanted him in the first place wanted him again, and they they ended up trading Andrew Wiggins in a first-round pick for him. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So... When I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. NordVPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. 
malware trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24 seven game theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough. Uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Uh, let's buzz through some of these other extensions just to talk about them. Uh, Onyeka Okongwu, four years, $62 million. Let me pull up my note sheet. I think that's basically all straight uh, in terms of, you know, it's a normal increasing salary that starts at 14 million, ends at 16.8. Um, what did you think of this deal? Because to me, this is the other like truly fascinating one. This to me makes me think that Nyeka Kongwu isn't confident that he's going to be a starter necessarily. I'm not saying with the Hawks, but like that he's going to be valued as a starter where he'd hit restricted for agency because I've used 15 million as like the solid starter number for like six years now. And obviously now it's more like 20 to 25. And so a Kongwu, he's getting below that, but he also hasn't established himself as a starter starting level player and, there is a big difference between those, even at, at even at center, where a lot of centers don't even close games anyway. And so, I I think for a Kongwu, there is a chance that he would have gotten more had he hit restricted free agency. But the other part of this, we're talking about percentage of the cap and everything else, and something worth remembering: these are human beings, and the representatives are as well. And sixty-four million dollars is life-changing money, and to secure that 100%. a year in advance is completely reasonable. And then the other big fascinating part of this, and I think this might be part what you're getting at, is a connection between Minnesota and Atlanta, and there are a few others that we'll discuss, is that these teams have very real financial risks or situations. And so for Atlanta, like they they didn't extend Sadiq Bay, for example. And part of it might have been that they were like, hey, we're we're budgeting it right now. And you can treat that as real or not real. But we, we could say is like, if you wanted if you want 68 or 70, then you're going to you could get it through research for agency, but you're not getting it now. And then that be then you go to the player and, and like it's a weird way that teams have developed leverage with how much salaries have risen is that. They have to like they go and you're like, do you really want to be the next? And I hate to invoke a name here, but like the next Nerlens Noel, the next Dennis Schroeder, players who reportedly turned down significantly larger extensions than they ended up getting. And if you're like, yeah, yeah you know, I might end up, you know, 64 million over four years may end up being low for me, but I still made 64 million dollars in four years. That's that's pretty good. And for a con well, and the the other piece of it particularly is the leverage piece of it. So like Grape Ape brings up, it's like he was told, sign this and we'll play you more. Don't sign this and you will get what you've gotten. Like I have absolutely heard of situations where teams say, 
look, if you want to be part of this long term, like sign this deal. Otherwise, you're not a piece of this long term and we're going to move on. And, and, and you have to decide that case, whether that's a like, credible threat or not. But it is a threat that teams can make. Right. But in this case, in Atlanta's case particularly, it's absolutely a credible threat because they have Clint Capella ahead of him. Onyeka Okongwu is not going to start. And they can keep Clint Capella for two more years. And Onyeka could have done something like, okay, I think I'm worth, you know, $100 million, something like that. Maybe I'll take the restricted or the qualifying offer and go from there and just try and get out of Atlanta. But that A, that doesn't seem like what he wants. And B, it doesn't seem like that's a great strategy when you have Clint Capella blocking you already. I think he was kind of like locked into having to take something, at least from Atlanta. And it seems like Atlanta did a good job. Now that Onyeka is locked in at this number, look, I personally don't think that a Clint Capella, Onyeka, Kongwu center combination is worth $37 million, which is what, like 25, 30% of the cap right now. So what they have to do now is they are now more likely, in my opinion, to move Clint now that Onyeka has signed this deal, which opens up time for him potentially to play. So the leverage factors here in all of these negotiations are always fascinating. And that's why this one particularly to me was like as interesting as any of them. One other one other thing that might be a sales pitch for Kong Wu, I'm guessing his representation at least mentioned this to him, is that it's not impossible, but it's a lot harder to trade a Kong Wu in season now with this extension than it is Clint Capella. So yeah. if the wrestler family wants to get their financial ducks in a row ahead of time, which some teams don't do, it's probably going to be by trading Clint Capella because it's probably not going to be trading a Kong Wu. And right. so you say you kind of make yourself the last man standing by concreting your feet to the po- to the to the like to the deck and so that that can be if you want to be there that can be good but also in terms of raising your profile getting an opportunity that doesn't and, and you securing the money and the uh, the other thing for a kongwu is as long as you're happy with the number that you got odds are if you end up being the one who's traded you'll get traded to a situation that's better than where you are right now because yeah. the the hawks won't the the another team won't trade for you to be put in this situation like they're just not going to do it don't most yeah. teams don't have that latitude and so you end up in this point where either you're going to be the one chosen or you're going to be the one traded to a team that is choosing you yeah. and also so that that could work out very well for him overall yeah and he's a good player like he's a is exceptionally efficient player as a finisher around the basket he is uh, a little bit small for a center which i think is the worry long term for him but he's a good rebounder. He's physical. He's strong. Like, this is a good deal, I think, for Okongwu, and this is a good deal for Atlanta. Uh, maybe he could have gotten more by waiting, but I think that you're right. Like, I think that by locking this in, he makes it so he's probably a part of this core long term. Uh, to Washington now, Denny Avdia signed the fourth biggest deal in this little window. Four years, $55 million. Again, this is a no options deal, but it is descending in terms of value, so he's going to start at 15. And that's why I'm smiling. Ending up at 11. I, I'll be honest with you. I still don't really love this deal, even with that. I think Denny is a fine player. Uh, he is a really effective defensive player. I think he is impactful on that end. I love the way that he's able to guard different player types. I think he's always in the right spots. He always seems to be disruptive. 
I just don't know what the offensive role is, and that's what worries me. Agreed on all fronts. And I, I think that Avdia, he he profiles as, as a weird a weird fit because he's a capable defender who is pretty limited offensively, and those types of players are actually way better starting than coming off the bench because of who they're playing against. You know, you don't necessarily need a great, a, a, a strong deep, great, it might be overstating it, a, a strong defensive wing coming off the bench because that's when the other team's offensive wing is going to be on the bench to an extent. And it's always more fluid than that. But what I love about this deal from Michael Winger's perspective, from Washington's perspective, is that it's front loaded. And the reason why is because of the kind of the, the, the concept of timing for the Wizards. So Washington doesn't have a ton, ton of flexibility in 24, 25. They could clear space, but first of all, they're not going to clear a ton. And second of all, like they're not going to be that in demand because the Wizards, I don't know how much people watched of their game last night. They're not going to be super great this year. So mm-hmm. what you do is you pay Avdia, you kind of gave him, let's call it like a $4 million bump for the 24, 25 season. And in exchange for that, you got him at fourth forward prices for another couple of years. And at that point, whether it's with you or with someone else, there could be some interest. And if Avdia had signed for any more than this, I would have hated the deal. If it would have been on a different structure, I probably wouldn't have liked it either. But the idea that we're going to see players who are very flawed get 15, 18 million pretty soon. Like that's just going to be where things are going. And so Avdia, not, you know, like lower usage, like how projectable is his role? Eh, not necessarily there, but there will be a place for, you know, six, eight forwards who can defend multiple positions and multiple offensive roles. And maybe, I mean, I think the Wizards are hoping that they can do better than him. They may have already done so in Bilal Koulibaly as things play out. But if that's the case, as long as Avdia is a viable, playable NBA player, there will be interest in him at this price. And we almost never see extensions done in this range, or at least we didn't before. This may be one of those rising tide things because of how much money is just around the league now. But from his perspective, it's like, yeah, get this money locked in. You're coming off. You're probably going to be coming off the bench at some point for the Wizards this year. And if you're coming off the bench for one of the worst teams in the league, you're not going to be generating a ton of buzz. So from his perspective, get that money when you can. But from the Wizards' perspective, I don't think they had to do this deal, but I don't think that it's going to burn them horrendously because even if he ends up being a version of, of not unplayable, but like less, use, less useful, then it's not like deeply underwater. It's going to be really hard for a deal that is 13 million in 2026-27 and 11.8 million in 2027-28 to be underwater. Do you know what percentage of the cap uh his deal is in 2027-28? I don't off the cuff, but it's going to be low. It's like 6%. Right. Like, like I mean it's it's going to be well under the mid-level exception. Yeah. Well under so, it, might, it may even be getting closer to the like the room exception at that point. Right. So this is it's fine. I don't think it's a terrible deal. I think I'm just like maybe a little bit less of a believer in Denny than what some people are. Uh the deal that I love and another deal that I want to talk about just from like the perspective of the differing leverages that teams and players have is Josh Green. Josh Green signed a 3-year 41 million dollar deal. To me 
this deal is a win for Josh Green. Like Josh Green, very clearly, in my opinion, took less money on an average annual value equation, probably by like a couple million dollars a year, maybe more, to hit free agency faster. And that is something that really nobody else did in this class, which is just interesting beyond interesting to me. It's a great way of phrasing it because Josh Green now, he, his contract is very close to Luka Doncic's. So Doncic, he has a player option for what would be Josh Green's last season under contract on this new extension. And yeah. I so, so yeah, I was focused more on the annual value and the idea that Josh Green, you know, I think he's a better player than this. The, you know, solid starter money is getting more towards 18 to 20 million and Josh Green is getting significantly less than that. And even though, like some of the other players we've talked about, not going to have a huge role in the offense. The Mavericks don't need that. A lot of other teams don't. You want the ball in the hands of your better players in the first place. And like, this is the, it's the opposite of the Dylan Brooks problem where it's like, okay, you, you want you, if a guy isn't great with the ball in his hands, you want it in his hands, relatively speaking, as little as possible. And I think Josh Green did a better job embracing that role. I also want to give him credit for being a very effective two-point finisher. And some of that is playing with Luka and now playing with Kyrie. But some of it is also just like understanding where your spots are and understanding that you're not going to take bad shots. So for Green, as you mentioned, probably lower annual value to get out in free agency earlier. And for a guy who's pretty young, this this contract will cover his 24, 25, and 26 seasons. So that means he'll hit unrestricted free agency around his 27th birthday. It is definitely compelling. And it's possible that, you know, he's hard to extend because even with the more generous rules that we discussed earlier, but Josh Green, another one of those players who doesn't do everything, but can do a lot of things that teams need. And you have the players above him to make him make sense. And I also think that signing only a three-year contract you brought up the freedom part of it and like the leverage. And that is a fantastic point. I'm really happy you did. The other part of that is it makes it more likely that your sample is going to be the good times because we don't know what's going to happen with Luca. Maybe he stays a Maverick for the rest of his career. But when teams are thinking about Josh green, now they'll be thinking about his time with Luca Doncic because that's going to be a, an overwhelming part of the sample. And so that's a very good thing for him when you, when you're trying to get your third contract. Well, here's my question to you. Like, if you're the Dallas Mavericks, should you have been willing to kind of overpay? Like, should you have been willing to go to like 20 million a year for Josh Green on four years to get him like to four years? To four, no. I think that that's not enough utility because you can always just extend him at a higher number or you could use bird rights. They'll have full bird, of course, on him at the end of this contract. If it was five, maybe just on the idea that things are going to be so out of whack by that point, maybe you're getting a huge value. But sometimes if a player is willing to take a below market contract, but they want to do it on short term, you bet on that. And then you hope that you can resign him if he's good enough to, to warrant that. Or maybe you trade him while his value side, like you could get there a lot of different directions. And so I, I think that there might not have been a better deal for the Mavericks from that perspective, depending on how Green was negotiating. Now, if he was willing to take roughly this money for five years, I would have done that. Does Generally, if it's yeah, team-friendly, the team should want it for as long as possible. And if it's player-friendly, the player should want it for as long as possible. But that is, it is a worthy consideration. And so I don't think that 
I, th- to me, what you're doing in that circumstance, it's definitely a good question, but I think you're adding to the downside risk. And I think the Mavericks with where they are, they don't need a lot of downside risk. They don't need more than they already have. So no, take, take the contract and then like, they're not exactly the most movable boat, you know, like if they end up having to transition, that's going to be hard for them, but they, they have a player here that, that can help out a lot of teams that is on a reasonable contract and that other teams will feel belief that they can resign. So even if Josh Green is not a Maverick, another team will be interested in him at this number. So this next one here, Cole Anthony. This is a deal that I love and hate simultaneously. I think that Cole Anthony is worth $13 million a year. Like I, I think that Cole Anthony has improved every single season that he has been in the NBA. The first year, it was a little bit rough. Like he was struggling a little bit. It felt like things weren't quite going his way. He was pretty inefficient. He was small. It was a struggle. Second year, he gets a little bit better in terms of being able to knock down shots, feeling like he is a little bit more of a consistent distributor. Last year, where I felt like he got way better was like shot selection and ability to just straight up shoot. He's always a guy that's had like an incredible amount of touch. But you look at the way that he was able to improve in terms of his decision making, both in limiting turnovers, which was a problem in his sophomore year, and in terms of shot selection and finding the open areas of the court. I thought that he played with a lot more poise and patience last year. Now this year, if the first game is any indication, what he's been able to do now is reintegrate that speed that he plays with while also having that same level of decision-making. And if he can do this throughout the course of the full season, I don't think he's going to average 20 points a game or anything, but like if he can average like 15, 16 and five or six assists and be like fairly efficient as a scorer and be fairly efficient in terms of not turning the ball over. I mean, this, this is a steal of a contract in my opinion. There where are I'm some... confused, oh, sorry. where I'm confused is Orlando. Like, Orlando has chosen to take Anthony Black. They have taken Jalen Suggs. They're going to have to make a decision on extending Jalen Suggs this summer. And they have to make a decision on Markel Fultz's contract this year. In my personal opinion, I know Cole Anthony is better than Jalen Suggs right now. I think Jalen Suggs is probably going to be better long-term. Based off of taking Anthony Black at number six overall, I would bet Orlando thinks Anthony Black is going to be better than Cole Anthony long-term. And right now, Markel Fultz is better than Cole Anthony long-term. So you're signing a guy to this deal when he's like your potentially your fourth guard at the very least, right? I, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with just like Orlando's overall decision-making around Paulo and Franz. I love all of the guys on their team. I, I I think they're so talented. I think that Orlando does a great job of identifying guys who are really good at basketball. I, I am struggling with the team building aspect of Orlando at this point. I don't love all the guys on their team fitting together. Like that is one of my issues. They, that's what I've I mean. About a lot, a yeah. lot over the years. But I think you evaluate this extension on its own merits, and I think that's what Orlando did. So they got Cole Anthony. I see this as actually weirdly similar to the Denny Avdia contract, where they got him at 
non-starter money. And like you could think of the Kobe White contract, um, which was restricted for agency, not not a, an extension, as a relatively similar thing. One of the other important elements to mention with Cole Anthony is that we didn't have this initially when it came out, but his third year is a team option. So that gives the Mavericks, an, or not the Mavericks, the Magic, an out. Um, not that I think they're going to need it or want it, but they have it just mm-hmm. in case. It's like a you know mitigating risk type of thing. But I think the the re, the reason you evaluate each of these on their own merits is because that is how each player will be evaluated moving forward. And so Cole Anthony, I I'm lower on him than some, but I still think of him as a guard that should definitely be in rotation. Probably you know third guard, maybe fourth if you're not optimistic. And the, the reason why he's more of a third guard to me is because. I don't love him as n- enough as an initiator to fill that big role, and then he doesn't really have a perfect skill set to play the smaller role. You think about those those kinds of different things as you know, like constituent elements. And so Cole Anthony, he's a little too good at one part and a little not good enough at another, and so that yeah. makes you more of a third fourth guard. And suddenly, like Kobe White, and so with Anthony, you you do that evaluation on his own merits, and you say, would another team? be willing to give him to have him on this kind of a contract a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. And I think the answer is yes. And so then what you're doing, because Anthony Black is locked in for this year and three more, and then you have the right to extend him. Suggs is the timeline's a little tighter because they drafted him earlier and Fultz. It's more fluid because of the structure of his contract. He, they theoretically could, you know, like they have, they have to figure things out, but also Markel Fultz is more of a known commodity or at least he should be. So, to me, yes, you have a lot of overlapping guys that simultaneously might not be great enough at what they do and like aren't great fits with each other, but you don't have to play all those games right now. You can make that evaluation in February. You can make that evaluation in June, July of next year. You can see what you can get in the draft. And importantly for the Magic, you can see what you can get in free agency next year. If they end up, I think they're going to go in 25, not in 24, but they have the ability to do either. And so... Yeah. Maybe either Anthony Black was awesome this year, or maybe he was a disappointment, or maybe Jalen Suggs. Like I think what they end up solving, they end up solving that question, Suggs and Black, and then Cole Anthony just kind of slides in with the survivor, and and you could you could throw Marco Fultz in there too, and then make it like keep two of the three, or maybe even keep one of those three, and then you say Cole Anthony, like we hope that you'll be good enough, and we'll keep you in that, and then they still need to fill the other backcourt spot unless you're more of a Suggs or Black optimist than I am. But you have Cole Anthony to price that you're happy with. And if and if you're not thrilled with him, then you send him somewhere else. And you're probably not going to get like an unprotected first round pick for it, but you'll have a team that's interested. And Orlando Orlando's place in Cap Space Derbies has been complicated over the years because they've actually been competitors for a lot of different players and gotten some, but they didn't like get Tim Duncan the time they almost did. And and so all of that is worth considering. But I, I like this deal from Orlando's perspective, even though I don't love their team building because they they bought themselves time to figure this out. And if Cole Anthony was about to hit unrest- to hit restricted for agency in a year, then you're more at the whim of how everybody else values him. And instead, yeah. you probably got him a little bit low because yeah. he's not sure how other teams value him. And so you the information premium and everything else like that. So I, I'm 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 fine with it. I'm good with the deal. Like, I think it's fine for Orlando to sign the deal. I just continue to have questions about like their overall direction. I think that's where I'm at. Despite the fact that I am a fan of basically everybody on their roster in terms of like talented players on their roster. I just don't know if they fit together. Um, 
the the last couple of guys here I want to talk about Aaron Naismith, Zeke Naji. We we can bring up Peyton Pritchard kind of at the end, but like Zeke Naji and Aaron Naismith are interesting because Aaron Naismith three years, thirty three million. I believe that's an eleven flat deal. It is Zeke Naji four years, thirty two million. Is that a descending deal? If I remember correctly, I, I think it's I think it's going up, and there's a player option on the fourth year. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, it might, Danny, that might descend. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Let me let me let me look descends, at my notes. Um, but I'm not 100 percent sure on. Regardless, it doesn't really matter. It's like oh, it does descend. Difference. You're 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 correct. I was doing it from memory. Yeah, it does descend, and it does have so, the aforementioned player option. So you're in a situation with these two where. I would wonder, in Indiana's case particularly, these deals strike me as salaries to try and trade long-term. Uh, Indiana does not have a ton of like numbers like this on their books moving forward. Uh, Buddy Heald expires after this year. Daniel Tice is a team option at $9.5 million next year that they you know may decline. TJ McConnell has $5 million of his $9.3 million guaranteed next year. Then, you know, the other deals are Tyrese Halliburton at $35 million, Bruce Brown on like a club option for 23 and then Miles Turner at 19 I think they actually needed a deal like this for trade matching purposes if they want. Potentially, though, the Pacers, depending on what happens with Bruce Brown, they could just go the cap space route again. And cap space is the is the other way of matching salary. You just take the player in. We've seen that over the years. You can do an imbalance trade and everything else. My concern with both of these deals is the idea that are you sure enough in what you're getting that you needed to make the deal now? And so I like Correct. Aaron Neesmith. I like Zeke Naji. I complained incessantly that Zeke Naji wasn't playing enough in the regular season and postseason for the Nuggets. But I didn't see a risk with them like that. And remember, you're getting restricted rights at the end of this, that they were going to be popping like $16 million a year offer sheets. And to me, in those sorts of circumstances, I'd rather wait it out. I'd rather say, oh, this is definitely a player who's in our rotation. And while the Denver Nuggets have plenty of financial obligations in terms of their more important players and their, you know, a tax team, they're probably going to be a tax team over the next few years. And they should be, they're the champs. And then with the Pacers, there's the uncertainty with their cap space and everything else moving forward. So I agree with your idea of like, they can be filler salary, but I, first of all, you see guys wither on the vine in this kind of a player group where it's like, you're probably not a starter and you're like not the type of backup, backup like a manual quickly that gets guys really that gets general managers really excited. So you can you can end up getting them for less. And I don't think of either Najee or Neesmith as so special, so unique that a worse version of them or or a better version of them is super hard to find. So I like I like Neesmith, I like Najee, but from the team's perspective, I think these were deals that did not need to be signed now. The other piece of it with Zeke, and this is something you're going to be able to explain a little bit more than me. Washington is in a, or Denver, I'm sorry, is in a very strange position right now where they're, they're not moving any of their five starters. You would agree with that, right? I would. Yes. Yeah. So Reggie Jackson is on 5 million. 
Christian Brown, Julian Strother, Peyton Watson, Vlako Chanchar, Justin Holiday. Those guys are on like, you know, 3 million to 2 million, basically. Reggie's on five. Zeke Naji is on four. And this makes it a little bit harder to trade him. Not a lot harder, but a little bit harder. Can you explain the poison pill of him signing an $8.9 million deal or an $8 million deal average annual value in comparison to how tradable he is now on a current salary of $4.3 million? Sure, I'm doing this off the cuff, and I will admit poison pill is not like the best thing in my repertoire. But the way that I, as, as I have it in my head, is that it calculates differently for the trading team and the acquiring team. And so mm-hmm. the acquiring team, it's the value of it's basically the the average value of the contract, including the extent the year that is not subject to the extension. Whereas for the Nuggets, it, it classifies at the at the value that he is now. So that means you can trade for less salary, and that means that matching gets a little bit harder. But with Zeke Naji, those numbers aren't too far apart. So it actually yeah. doesn't really create much of a poison pill to deal with in the first place. So if a team thinks that they want Zeke Naji on this contract, then they should be able to trade for him now. Especially, like, this is his contract is very conducive to working within a trade exception. So you could do it that yeah. way because that's the other way you can facilitate matching salary. The Nuggets create a smaller exception in that circumstance, but that might not be why they're doing it. We will have to see that moving forward. And then, so, yeah. so that is part of the equation here, but to me, that's a pretty big swing by Denver considering he wasn't playing a ton for them last year. And to say that, Oh, another team is going to be thrilled to have him for backup center money when i mean maybe they have intel maybe there there's something that's out there so yes i do think that was probably a part of the thought process i don't know that it would have been persuasive for me yeah to me like it, it just th- this is a deal that was like weird to me like I, I didn't really understand it for either side because if you're denver you're taking a risk because like zeke naji this year is going to prove you know whether or not he can play right just straight up uh they're going to have to play him he's going to be the backup and we'll find out the answer to that question But I think that doing this deal probably makes it less likely that Zeke Naji is really tradable from a matching salary perspective. Either he fills the backup center role and you're happy or he doesn't and you have to go find one. And now it's harder to move his contract than it would have been previously because he's on, you know, even without the poison pill, he's now on like five years, $36 million dollars when he might not have proven himself yet as an NBA player. And that feels like a risk to me. Yeah. On top of it, if you're Zeke Naji, I guess that like you can lock in this money and, you know, who am I to, you know, complain about somebody turning down $32 million? Like I, you know, good for him. Right. The problem here is that Naji, if he proves that he's good, is going to be worth way more than this on the free agency market. Right. Well, I think he's worth he's worth a lot more than that if he can establish himself as a starter. You know, like we we've seen guys like Isaiah Hartenstein, who I thought had a pretty good resume when he and a former Denver backup in his own right, though that's not how he came into free agency. You know, and and in a different cap environment, he got like nine nine and a half million a year. And so for Najee, unless he basically got the mid level. 
unless you establish yourself as either a starter or a closer, and that's hard to do at center, you know, if you're not like starters don't even necessarily close, then it's, it's hard to have a team fall in love with you. And so for, for Najee, I think what this is, is it's an acknowledgement that that number, it could have been out there, but that you can't be sure. And so now you secure, you secure that money on a team that, didn't you know that didn't really necessarily value you that way and there's no guarantee that you'll be a nugget for the rest of this but that you'll get paid you know solid backup money for a half a decade that's pretty fantastic is solid backup money eight million or is it 13 million it's about to become like it's about to become 13 um that's where i'm at on it like if he's a solid backup I wonder if there's some real money left yeah. on the table. Here. But but not uh, really in restricted free agency. Like that that is a yeah, backup true. backups have a really hard time in restricted free agency. Unrestricted they can they can get paid, but restricted That's a good point. It can be like I, I think there's a real chance that he would have gotten a lot less than he wanted. Yeah, you've sold me on this a little bit more. Makes a little bit more sense. Uh the last thing here before we get out of here. Desmond Bain. Well, two more things real quick. Desmond Bain Tyrese Halliburton, LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards. Do we have any additional thoughts on them in terms of having signed since the summer? Not particularly. I mean, they're high-level players that signed for high-level money, and that that's the way it should work out. Yeah. And we'll see whether any of them trigger the All-NBA criteria this year. It's, it's a high bar. Like, that's typically one of the 15 best players in the league. But it is a little different now with the games played requirements. We'll see which way that cuts for these individual players because it both narrows the field of eligible players, but it also could cut them out depending on how yeah. the season goes for them. So it, you know, a small a small injury can become a bigger factor in that. And then for Desmond Bain, there was a lot of attention paid to that his his contract, but among people wired like me, which is not that many people, uh, that his contract it's it's a specific number. It's not a proportion of the cap. Yes, and so yes. that you know, from Memphis's perspective, maybe that's the idea that the cap would rise ho- higher than expected. From his perspective, maybe that it wouldn't. I'm, you know, we'll, we'll take it. the NBA has been very conservative for twenty four, twenty five, which is the only year that matters for calculating all these numbers. That the cap isn't going to go up a ton. So I think that it was smart from Memphis's perspective to do that if you could, if you had that wiggle room from Bain. But I don't know. I think it's more like smart than it is going to save them money. Like I think that's probably the way that I would put it now. But Desmond Bain, Tyrese Halliburton, Anthony Edwards are all really, really good basketball players, and they got paid appropriately. Yeah. Last question here. Is Do you have an overarching takeaway on what these extensions say about the new collective bargaining agreement? I think that there are going to be a lot of reevaluations for specific players involved three and four and five years down the line because you got this life-changing money. I'll use Jaden McDaniels and Dem Vassell. We talked about them a lot in this podcast. I think that in the fourth and fifth years of this extension, they're going to be they're going to be forgetting how good they felt when they signed up, and they're going to be like, "Look at all these players who are making so much more money than I am." Maybe that involves them firing the representation, but it is worth acknowledging that they got a lot of money out of the deal and they got it early. Um, but yeah. the the idea that the cap is going to be roughly two hundred million at that point is going to make a lot of these numbers look ridiculous if the players play up to it, and there's no guarantee that they will. And so for me, the juxtaposition of, I, I mean, I'm going to go back to a piece I wrote for The Athletic years ago about, it was Jeremy Grant, we're going back to him again, versus KJ McDaniels. And so KJ McDaniels took the 
tender. Basically, he didn't sign the multi-year, yep. what I, I called the hinky special, because he wanted control. And there are a lot of people who trashed McDaniels for that. He made more money over the course of those three years than Jeremy Grant made for a while. And I don't think the reason he flamed out of the league was because of that contract structure. It was just because he wasn't as good a player as some other guys. And so that relates to Josh Green and to McDaniels and Vassell. Like, I don't think Josh Green is going to make as much over these other years, but the control that he gets and the freedom that he gets will be very, very notable. And he's going to hit free agency earlier than them. He's going to have more power in the process. And that doesn't mean, you know, like he took below market and they didn't. So that that's, a, and they're obviously much more established players. So, I know that there will be regrets and I know that there will be regrets from the team, from the player side and the team side, but I'm extremely excited to see where those lines are because as much as I like to think that I know about this, I'm not confident in that at all. Jeremy Grant versus KJ McDaniels. KJ McDaniels made twice as much money in his three years in the NBA as Jeremy Grant made in his first four years in the NBA. And again, I'm with Danny. I don't think that the contract is why KJ McDaniels uh, ended up in the position he ended up in. So I say all of this to say, I do wonder at what point, and really my guess is that the salary cap rising ends up resulting in teams getting more and more control over these guys. Because if you think about it realistically, it's fucking hard to turn down $62 million. If you're in Yekka Kongwu, you can't turn down $131 million, $136 million. If you're Jade McDaniels in Devin Vassell, the rising cap is going to result in these guys going, fuck, what am I going to turn down a hundred million dollars? Like a lot of these guys don't come from like shit. It, the rising cap is going to result in, in my opinion, teams potentially getting even more bargains in restricted free agency. And I wonder if we hit the point where we have to really look at restricted free agency as a mechanism for retaining players long-term because players aren't making quite as much money as they could through the first eight years of their career, almost kind of like in baseball. And then it results in these big salaries down the road that end up uh, going crazy. And look in baseball, it's like totally different. You don't make nearly as much money in years you know, four through six as you do in years four through six in the NBA. So that won't change and that will never change. That won't be different or that will be different. But I do wonder if as the cap rises, teams just start going to these guys. Okay. Are you going to be the person that turns down 125 fucking million dollars? Good luck. Yeah. And, and how does it work out? Because as much as we know that you don't want to treat too much off the narrow, small sample size, how does it work for the first two or three guys who do it? Yeah. hundred percent. It's 100% right. Danny, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. A lot going on. I mean, start of the season. So you can listen to me on Dunked On, Dunked On Prime. Nate and I go in five times a week. Uh, Real GM Radio once a week. Uh, my excellent guest this week was the one and only Sam Vecini. We recorded that right before this. This will probably come out before that because I'm busy and take time. And the other thing I'll, I'll mention is that 
Nate and I are going to be doing more broadcasts this year too, because not only are we doing we bringing back the NBA League Pass, the strategy stream will be back roughly once a week over the course of the year, which we're super thrilled about. If you have a League Pass subscription, you can watch us and you get our commentary with the game. It's the dream that we always had. We'll also be trying to do stuff with playback pretty regularly throughout the year, and we're going to do our best to tether that at times to the in-season tournament. Nate and I are both very excited about that, and the, sing- the single elimination element, the group element, and so... There will be a lot of that, of course, written work also at The Athletic, and it's it's going to be a really fun year. We didn't talk as much about the like big picture of the NBA, but this might be my favorite year to like be a fan, to be somebody who watches the league professionally in a long time. Yeah, I think it's mine too. I'm really, really excited about it. Uh, go to The Athletic. Keep me employed over there. Uh, I will have a breakdown of Cade Cunningham coming. You know, If you go to the YouTube channel, you'll probably be able to find it if you're listening to this on the podcast feed. Uh, I will, I've already done a breakdown of Victor Wembanyama's uh, debut. Go to the YouTube channel, watch that. Uh, go subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's a great place to get all of this content. Uh, what else? I think that's about it. Uh, I'll have top 20 wings for college basketball coming early next week, probably at this point. Uh, that's all I've got. Until next time, folks, we will talk soon. Bye.